This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Appreciate you tuning in. The first text that we're looking at today is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20, where Paul says, The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. As there is only one true God, worship offered to anything else has to be idolatry. And any sacrifice made to an idol is, in reality, Paul says, made to a demon. And as with his ancient people, God insists that we see the world this way, in those black and white kind of terms. I think many Westerners who shake their heads and mock and scorn the very idea of religion or surrender to a higher power or any kind of authority uh, religiously, they are themselves engaged in a religion of their own. In other words, their refusal to do such is in fact a religion. For example, who is the God of homosexuality? Who is the God of adultery? Who is the God of covetousness? Who is the God of abortion? Certainly not the God that we read of in the Bible, the eternal creator of heaven and earth. It's interesting, in the years 1904 to 1909, there was an archaeologist named uh, R.A. Stuart McAllister, and he went to Israel and made excavations in what's known as the Canaanite Stratum in a place called Gizar or Gizer. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. But he discovered ruins there of an ancient high place. If you read in the Old Testament, especially in the book of First and Second Kings, you'll find repeated mentions of these high places. And a lot of times the king that's being spoken of in the context is spoken of in a way uh, as, as to how he handled the high places. Some of them went out and tore them down. Some of them left them. And it's a commentary on the spiritual status of that king in the country at the time. And this particular high place that Stuart McAllister found was a small temple in which uh, Baal worship and Ashtaroth worship was conducted. Uh, you can see those individual idols mentioned again throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah 19.5 is one place that is there. They are specifically named where the prophets calling the people out for worshiping those idols. And the temple that he found in this high place, it was a, a relatively, you know, small enclosure. And I say relatively speaking, when you think about length and width, it was 150 feet by 120 feet. So that's about the width of a football field and nearly half the, half the length. So, you know, it's a good size, but when compared to other holy sites in the ancient world, it was, there were numerous of these types of high places. And anyway, and they were simple in their construction. You know, it was surrounded by a wall. There wasn't a, there wasn't a ceiling, so it was just open to the sky. But uh, worshipers, uh, Israelites and Canaanites, would come here and uh, engage in various forms of, of worship. And inside the, the walls, the rectangular structure, there were ten raw stone pillars. So they brought these stone pillars into this this place, and they were five to eleven feet high. So about the size of an individual up to, you know, you know, head and shoulders above an average man. And that was where these different um, worship worshipers would, would go to these pillars and offer their sacrifices before these pillars. So these are the high places that Scripture is, is speaking of. And 
Another thing that McAllister found there in great numbers in this place were jars, tons and tons of jars containing the remains of children who had been sacrificed in these idolatrous acts of worship and um, sacrificed to Baal. So it was basically a mass grave of newborn babies, right? That'd be small enough to, to fit in these jars. However, they would would do it. The, the, Old, the Old Testament describes a number of different ways that children were sacrificed. But you think about that finding and you think about what, what it must have been like and, and just all these little children in these jars, just their remains scattered everywhere. You know, how is that really any different? How is that fundamentally different from a dumpster behind an abortion clinic? And so I, I tell, I, you know, I use that to illustrate the point that I was making that, you know, people who mock the idea of religion uh, are themselves engaged in religion of of their own. Now, we don't have, we may not have a high place in the way that the Canaanites have a high place, but the, the, the same acts which they engaged in. See, it wasn't just about bowing down to a rock and it wasn't just about having a God named Baal that wasn't Jehovah it was, it was more than that. It was being wrapped up in whatever practice they wanted to justify with this religion, specifically getting rid of their children in this case. And so it turns out that Americans and Canaanites have much in common. And try to remember how Jesus dealt with Canaan in the Old Testament. Well, he wiped those people out. There was another horrible practice that is related to child sacrifice uh, is what what was called foundation sacrifices. And so sometimes when a house was built, a child would be sacrificed and then its remains or its body would be put into the wall of the house. And it was thought that this would bring prosperity or good luck to the rest of the family because they had sacrificed this, this child. And these, many of these, like the high places, many of these remains have been found in houses around Gezer and Megiddo and Jericho and other and other places. Um, and I, I mentioned that to make this other point or to draw this other parallel. Back in March of this year, a talk show host named uh, Busy Phillips or Bussy Phillips, I don't know how to say her name, uh, shouted her abortion with activists gathered outside of the Supreme Court. Remember, that was a trend for a while, you know, the hashtag shout your abortion. You know, don't don't feel any shame about about this, and so go out and tell people about it. And so there was this big event outside the Supreme Court, and in her speech, she noted how she had an abortion at 15 years old, and that allowed her, she claimed, to have nicer things in life, uh, including the two healthy children that she currently has now, uh, drive a hybrid car, hybrid car, and uh, own a a beautiful expletive home, as she said in her, her speech. So think about what she's saying. I'm not the brightest guy in the room, but it sure sounds a whole lot like a foundation sacrifice is what she's talking about. Sacrificing that child had brought her better things later in life, according to her, which is exactly what the Canaanites were hoping for when they made their foundation sacrifices. On top of that, McAllister, the archaeologist, found many images and plaques of Ashtaroth. Now, Ashtaroth and Baal were related 
gods, um, idols. Astroth was a, a fertility goddess, and she was often designed or carved with exaggerated uh, sex organs. And so in these high places, you would find these little little plaques or cutouts or statuettes of of Astaroth, right? And she would a lot of times be holding her breasts in her hands and like bring you know holding them forth. And so it was designed uh, like modern day pornography, basically. So it was put in these places um, of of quote worship to bring arousal to the individuals who would be engaged in idolatry. So. Uh, again, Ashtaroth or Asherah or the Asherim, as it's referred to in the Old Testament, sometimes in the plural, because you know there were, you know, each sometimes every town and city had it kind of its own flavor of Baal or or Ashtaroth, but they were all thought of generally as the fertility goddesses of the, of the Canaanites. And so you have temples of Baal and temples of Ashtaroth, and they were usually located together, right? So you have Ashtaroth or priest where priestesses of Ashtaroth. Um, at these high places dedicated to her, they were essentially prostitutes. So you read about temple prostitutes in the Old Testament um, in Deuteronomy 23 and 2 Kings 23 also, where they're condemned. And uh, the king in 2 Kings 23, for example, is um, singled out for his relationship to those priestesses. And there were also men who served as priests, you know, quote, priests in these places, and they performed as prostitutes as well. And they're referred to um, actually, the reference in Second Kings 23 is specifically about them, the male cult prostitutes is what, what they're called. And so they would engage in you know, fornication with both women and men who would come to these places. And so that was you know, the worship of, of Ashtaroth. So, and, and the worship of Baal, again, they're, they're closely related, and these high places would be very similar. So you know, Baal, Ashtaroth, other Canaanite gods, the, the worship of those things consisted of extravagant orgies and so it it's reasonable i think to infer that the children sacrificed in these places were likely conceived there in previous acts of worship right so it was never about you know this kind of um i think what we see in our minds is kind of this primitive sort of you know as people are so dumb bowing down to a statue and, and certainly that's how scripture presents it because it's condemning idolatry, but it was never just about that. It was never just about, I think this piece of wood is an actual God. It was, it was about the behaviors associated in worshiping with that God, right? So they had to justify it in some, some way, like my God, my God wants me to fornicate and participate in orgies and have sex outside of marriage and so on and so forth. And my God uh, wants me to sacrifice the children that were conceived as a result of those you see, it was about the the behavior. So I don't, you know, no one has to stretch their imagination to see Canaanites lined up alongside Americans chanting, "My body, my choice," or put the fetus in the bin, or boasting about their sexual freedom and their sexual and reproductive rights. You see, nothing has changed, and it brings me back to my first point. Again, those who mock the idea of religion or belief in God are themselves entrenched in their own religious practices dedicated to their own gods. Now, they won't articulate it that way. But it is, nevertheless, the biblical spiritual reality. 
You see, they could never admit we're sacrificing our children simply because we don't want them. They could never say that. Some of them may go so far as to do that. But most of them don't. They, they have to do it in the name of something, right? They have to do it in the name of something great, something higher, in the name of rights or the name of freedom or the name of autonomy or something like this. You know, And they believe their cause is just and they believe their cause is noble and even divine. You know, the Canaanites masked their constant pleasure-seeking and their hatred and their selfishness and murder by doing it in the name of a god. And so do their modern American counterparts. They, like the idolaters of old, with every act of worship, sacrifice part of themselves as well. And the part that they sacrifice is their conscience. Until there is nothing left. There's no conscience there. Isaiah 44 and verse 20 says, Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. His deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? You have to go back and read the fuller context of Isaiah 44 as God is describing the reality of idolatry and the consequences of idolatry and how he's going to handle it. But he's exposing just the absurdity of it of it all and here in verse 20 that i just read one of the terrible consequences is that that searing of the conscience not even being able to be honest with yourself is this is what i'm doing is this thing in my right hand a, a lie is it even real a deluded heart has led him astray you see we all worship something there's no middle ground Either we are idolaters or we are not. Either we worship the God of heaven and seek him with all of our hearts or we do not. As Paul said at the outset, either we worship demons or we worship God. And that shouldn't seem like a stretch to any of us. It shouldn't sound too black or white. It's the view that the Bible has, that God has, and that he's calling us to have. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters, he says. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, in that particular context, most English translations will say you cannot serve both God and money, but in Jesus' original language, what he says is you can't serve both God and mammon. So what he's doing there is he's he's personifying the love of wealth as an idol called mammon. You see, Jesus had the same worldview. Either it's God that you serve or it's something else. It can be both. It can be both. All right, our next text that we're going to consider is in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. This is where Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. I single out this text because it is a reminder of just how awesome God's knowledge is, and also his care for all creatures, that nothing is outside of his thoughts or protection. The, the fact that everyone around us 
may forsake us and show no hesitation in, in betraying us, yet he will not. In the darkest and most difficult times, whether you're suffering at the hands of an unbelieving spouse or you've lost your job or you're dealing with chronic illness or you know all the various challenges that this year in particular has put before us, we might wrestle to understand why God would allow such things to happen. But here in Jesus' words, we see the reminder that he does love and, and care for us. And Satan will always be trying to find ways to get us to doubt the love of God, to doubt the, the care of God and, and the power of God. But we have to remember Jesus' words, and not only his words, but the way he lived and ultimately his sacrifice. If we look to the cross, we know that is where God proved his love for you and me. And so your circumstances and tragedies that you have suffered this year, whatever they mean, or any year for that matter, whatever they mean, they will never mean that God does not love you. Jesus says you are more valuable. All may forsake you, but God desires to give you grace and mercy to endure. And nothing happens without his knowledge and permission. I think that's another point that comes through this verse. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his knowledge. He stands vigilant and watchful over his creation. The psalmist says in Psalm 21, 121 and verse 3, He will not allow your foot to slip. He watches over you and will not slumber. In Psalm 34 and verse 15, uh, the psalmist says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his cares are open to their cry. So all things he he is aware of, more so than, than you and I could ever be. And all things are ordered after his counsel. And so we have to trust him to deliver us, and he will. Even in the most grievous times of, of our lives, we should remember David's words. Psalm 46 and verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. God always wins, and he will bring peace. We just have to make sure that we are on his side. How do we do that? Isaiah 30 and verse 15, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. I think this year has taught us a great many things. And I think one of it, one of the things that it's taught us is that, or reminded us of, I should say, is that we're just, we're not in control. God is. We know passages like Ecclesiastes 9, 11, and 12 teach us that time and chance happen to us all. This lack of control is, is nothing new. We've never been in control. And those words are as true now as they were a thousand years ago. It's it's nothing new. Again, it's tempting to think that we are. You know, when things are going well and, you know, bank accounts are doing okay and economy is booming and we're, in a, we're living in a powerful nation, it's, you know, pride can begin to swell. And that's what we all thought the situation was at the beginning of the year. But it's, in a very short time, it, it all fell apart. In James chapter 4 and verse 13, 
James says, you know, come now, you who say, let us go to this or that city and we'll engage in such and such business. He says, you don't even know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. You know, we, we all have plans and we make plans, but, you know, we're, James tells us how, how, what perspective that we should have. Instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we're going to do this, this or that. And our life is just a vapor. We're here for a little while and then we're, we're gone. And we have no idea what's coming. The only thing we can be sure of is God's will and his love. And so that's what we need to seize upon, is my point. And, and run to him in humility and, and trust, as Isaiah says, and quietness and trust is your strength. Not in social security or pensions or houses or cars or stock markets or whatever. You know, it's one thing to pray when we have a full bank account and there's no pandemic going on and say, God, I trust in you. It's another thing to pray when we feel scared and alone and we say, God, I trust in you. We've been reminded that our health is fragile. We're fragile beings. We wear out. Economies can plummet. Countries can change in a matter of moments. And sin is still alive and well. The devil is active. And so we need an anchor. And we need to remember Jesus' words and his promise in Matthew 6, 19-21, to store up treasures in heaven where thieves do not break in and steal and moth and rust do not destroy where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Our home is in heaven, and that's where we should long to be. This world, even at its best, can't compare to all those blessings in eternity. So let's learn our lessons this year and, and develop more trust in the one that we can count on, not only here, but all through eternity. He loves us, and he's given us every truth and promise and blessing that we need to endure Years like 2020 or those that are even worse. So again, as we say good riddance to 2020, let's make sure we learn our lessons and glorify God.